When I was about eight years old, um, one of the most popular toys for boys was G.I. Joe. And I've told you before that, you know, my prize toy as a gift was, you know, my G.I. Joe helicopter. And I also told you the story of my embarrassment of thinking I bought a vintage one on on eBay only to find out that I had bought the box. And I am pleased to announce that eventually I was able to find the actual toy and through the love and generosity of my wife, uh, have that now. And it's just been life changing for me. So thank it's just, it's great. So, but that was sort of the toy to have uh, as, a, as a young boy when I was growing up. And uh, it was really cool to have that. But a boy in my neighborhood had a spaceship, a G.I. Joe spaceship. And let me tell you, there was nothing cooler than a spaceship in the 1970s. I mean, you know, a helicopter was one thing, but a spaceship, that was everything. And so he, he and I were talking, and we decided that we wanted to bring our G.I. Joe toys together for a, well, we didn't call it a play date back then, but that's really what it was. We were looking at doing this play date palooza where all of his stuff and all of my stuff came together for this, this great and exciting day. And so I was invited to bring my stuff to his house, but there was a problem. And the problem was, while his family did go to church on Sundays occasionally, they were social drinkers. They played cards. They went to dances. They were known to swear when they were provoked. And they rode their bikes on Sunday. And so as far as my mom was concerned, clearly they were sinners and a very bad influence for her impressionable young son. And so my mother was hesitant in allowing me to go inside the doors and play in their house, otherwise known as the den of iniquity. And so we had a dilemma. Now, she did, however, agree to allow my friend to come to our house. And so our one play date that we ever had ended up being in our house. And so... Uh, under the smile of God's approval, and more importantly, my mother's. Today, we are going to be considering our final characteristic from the early church in Acts as we have been focusing on uh, a series, Rediscovering Spirit Form Community. And so today will be our final characteristic. We will be considering how this spirit form community struggled to demonstrate both diversity and inclusion as the spirit was forming them and leading them. Now, in explaining the difference between diversity and inclusion, Verna Myers puts it this way. Um, diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusion is being asked to dance. This wouldn't have been a good illustration back in my mother's day, but it'll work okay this morning. Diversity, for the most part, came easy for the early church. As long as those who were coming from outside Judaism first converted to Judaism and followed the practices and regulations and then became followers of Jesus. But it became challenging when outsiders became followers of Jesus, were formed by the Holy Spirit, were empowered by the Holy Spirit, but did not convert to the practices and regulations of Judaism. Today's scripture highlights this struggle for us and provides us with insight into the moment when the church was able to become both diverse and inclusive in obedience to the Holy Spirit, even though it made them very uncomfortable. And so today, as we look at our scripture, what we'll see is this. A spirit-formed community is both diverse and inclusive as it carries out the mission of Jesus. Our scripture, Acts 11, was read earlier. Thank you very much for that. 
This event that we read about this morning, in actual fact, the scripture we read is Peter's summary of chapter 10 of the event unfolding. And so Peter is sharing what happened. This event that Peter is sharing about with these believers in Jerusalem played a pivotal role in the expansion of the gospel from Jerusalem literally to the ends of the earth. This event was, if you will, the door that opened the gospel to the Gentiles. So let's take a look at our scripture today. We'll start with the Caesarea vision. Our scripture today centers around two, two Holy Spirit-inspired visions. In fact, I will argue there are three here. The first vision takes place in Caesarea. Now, at the time of this account, Caesarea is the capital of the Roman Empire in Judea. And Cornelius, who was our main character, he's the person who experienced the vision. We're told that he is a centurion in the Italian regiment. He has command of a group of soldiers And we're also told that his spiritual situation was rather unique. He is a Gentile, not a Jew. He's not a follower of Jesus. In fact, he doesn't know anything about Jesus. But he has a longing. He has a desire for God in his life. And that longing and desire for God has resulted in him taking action that seems somewhat unusual for someone in his situation. He is someone who prays to this God that he really doesn't really know or understand on a regular basis. And he also gives financial assistance to those who are poor. And so what we see is we have a man here who, is a, who was a spiritual seeker but he really doesn't understand who it is he's seeking. And so at 3 o'clock on a particular afternoon, an angel, a messenger of God, appeared to Cornelius in a vision and called him by name. Now, this was clearly an unexpected experience for Cornelius, and it says his response was he just stared at the messenger in fear And then uttered these words, what is it, Lord? What is it, Lord? Recognizing that whatever this was, whoever this was, it was greater than he was. And the messenger responded and said, Cornelius, your prayers and your gifts have come up as a memorial offering before God. In other words, God knows you, Cornelius, even though you don't know him. He knows you. God knows what you have been doing in your attempt to respond to God, and and God wants you to know that it's not gone on notice. God sees you. God hears you. And God is pleased with you. Now, there's something you need to know, the messenger says. There's something you need to do. I need you to send word to Joppa for Simon Peter, and he's staying at the house of Simon the Tanner, and the house is located by the seaside. So, you know, Siri is giving address directions here. And I want you to go there, and I want you to find Simon Peter and ask him to come. Now, I want us to notice there's no reason given. This is why I want him to come. He doesn't tell him. He doesn't promise what the result of him coming is going to be. It's not talked about. It's not talked about. And so, just send for Peter. And so Cornelius immediately responded and sent two of the servants and one of the soldiers to Joppa to find this 
Simon Peter person and bring him back to Caesarea. Secondly, the Joppa vision. Up until now, Peter's ministry was focused on convincing his fellow Jews, as well as Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. To move Peter beyond this ministry focus to a broader acceptance required a spiritual encounter with God. Now, the timing is the day after the vision in Caesarea with Cornelius. It's noon, we're told, and Peter went up to the rooftop to pray, and he's likely seeking a place of solitude. He's a guest in this home. And we're told that while he was praying, he became very hungry. I don't know about you, I often become sleepy, but he became hungry. And so somewhere in here, he must have made that known or requested food because it says that while he's waiting for the food to be prepared, he fell into a trance and had a vision. And in this vision, as we read about this morning, this large sheet-like object was lowered down from heaven to the earth by four corners, and the sheet was filled with animals and reptiles and birds of many types, we're told. And some of them, perhaps all of them, but some of them at least, were considered unclean in the Jewish faith. And a voice then spoke to him and told him, Peter, get up, kill and eat from what's inside the sheet. Now, Peter was shocked, and he refused. Surely not, Lord. I can't do it. I am absolutely not doing it. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean in my entire life. The scripture translation we read this morning said, nothing unclean has ever entered my mouth. And then the voice spoke a second time. Said Peter, do not call anything unclean or impure that God has made clean. This vision was clearly bigger than which food is acceptable to eat. This is an illustration of the Jewish-Gentile relationship and the implications now of carrying out the mission of Jesus. And so three times Peter is asked to eat, and three times he says, I'm not doing it. I am absolutely not doing it. And then the vision ends with the sheet being taken back up into heaven. Now, Peter's perplexed about the vision, what it meant. He's deep in thought, trying to process it all. What, what, God, what are you trying to say to me? What does all this mean? What are the implications of this? I don't understand. And in the meantime, the three men from Caesarea, the two servants and the soldier, have arrived at the gate of the house, and they're calling out for Simon Peter. And Peter is so perplexed, he's so deep in thought, that he doesn't hear them calling out. In fact, we're told in Scripture that it's the Holy Spirit that says to Peter, uh, excuse me, but there are messengers at the gate, they have arrived and I want you to go down to the gate because I have sent them. And so Peter went to meet the messengers and said, why are you here? Why, why have you come? Why are you looking for me? And so they told Peter that Cornelius, about Cornelius, about the vision and about the mission to bring Peter back to Caesarea. And we're told that Peter received the Gentiles into the house as his guest you got to see that he's already moving towards inclusion from this vision. Small steps. He's invited them into the house. And the next day, Peter, he takes six brothers from the church in Joppa, and along with the three guests from Caesarea, and they set out for the house of Cornelius. Vision number two. Thirdly, the kingdom vision. In the next part of the story, these two 
seemingly independent visions converge. And so this is what I would refer to as the kingdom vision because it's God's intention now for his church, bringing these two together. Cornelius was expecting the group's arrival and had gathered together a group of relatives, close friends, set out some party mix, waiting for Peter to come and hear what he had to say. After all, if God was going through this much effort, it must be important. So Cornelius came out to greet Peter, and we're told he fell at Peter's feet. I love this. Cornelius clearly doesn't know the rules, the spiritual rules. You don't worship people. You only worship God, but he doesn't know that yet. And Peter said, you got to get up. Don't, don't worship me. I'm, I'm just a man like you. You, you. you can't do that. A large group was waiting in anticipation. What would Peter say to them? And so Peter opens his mouth and begins to speak. And I love it. Well, you are well, well aware that it's against our law for Jews to associate with the Gentiles. Just want to clear the air on that before I start. But God, I love it. So here's where I stand. However, God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So I came without resistance. I don't want to stand in the way between you and what God wants to do. So what is it you want? Why did you send for me? What do you want? Cornelius told him about the vision and said, we're here. I mean, this is every pastor's dream. We're here to listen to everything the Lord has given you. I wish you would just wear t-shirts that say that every Sunday. We're here to listen to everything the Lord has given you. And so Peter began to tell them about Jesus. And as, as he's speaking about Jesus, as he's preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit descends on the little gathering in the house. And it says, all, every last one of them, every last one of them, the Holy Spirit comes upon and baptizes them. And they begin to speak in tongues. Now, I want you to notice that Luke doesn't say, the believers from Joppa. He says, the circumcised believers from Joppa. The so-called clean ones are amazed. They're just standing there and their mouths are hanging open. They're completely lost that the Holy Spirit was poured out. See the language. Even, even, on the Gentiles, since they had received the Holy Spirit just as they had. They're, they're speechless. And then they ended up baptizing them in water. And I wish I could tell you that the story ends with they all lived happily ever after as one big, diverse, inclusive community. I wish I could tell you that's the end of the story, but it isn't, and that's why chapter 11 exists, because Peter has to defend what God is doing. Because the apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard what happened. Folks, let me tell you something. 53 years being in the church. If you have information that you want other people to know, whatever you do, just bring it to the church. People will know in no time. It is the most technologically advanced form of communication you will ever find. That's just for free. They heard in a day of no Instagram and no Facebook and no social media or, or internet or telephones, word spread fast. They knew. And so when Peter went back to Jerusalem... They're waiting for him. Notice again, Luke tells us, the circumcised believers criticized 
leader. It's like the equivalent of, Pastor, I need to talk to you about something. Peter, I need to talk to you about something. You went to the house of a Gentile. You ate Gentiles. Peter, Gentiles are unclean. You can't go in their house. You can't eat their food. You can convert them to our ways, and then they can be saved. But otherwise, you have to stay away from them. We have a problem here, Peter. We have a problem. Now, in fairness, these critical, Luke's words, circumcised, Luke's words, believers, also Luke's words, in fairness to them, I see their point of view. I really do. I'm not criticizing them because I understand it. They had oriented their lives around the word of God. Their whole lives centered around the word of God. Their whole lives centered around the teaching of their spiritual leaders that they respected and trusted for generations. The word of God clearly taught them that circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with his people, a symbol of relationship with God of fulfilling the requirements that God had laid out. The word of God clearly taught that Gentiles were unclean, that certain foods were unclean. I mean, forget about ever eating bacon-wrapped lobster. That's never happening. Being in the homes of Gentiles, clearly wrong. So I can understand their frustration because they've, they've centered their whole lives around this. It's difficult for them to process that what they had been taught and what they believed that God desired of them, what they had committed their lives to doing, is now seemingly in conflict with what the Holy Spirit is doing. There's a problem. And I understand the problem. And I give them credit because they have every right to be confused. And so they listened to Peter's explanation. And they became very quiet. Just like right now. It was a sobering moment. And then all of a sudden, out of the sobering moment, erupted praise. Wow. And the moment they could lock into what the Spirit was doing, they said, wow, we're praising God. God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Even even those unclean, impure, vile Gentiles can be saved and filled with the Spirit just like we did without becoming like us. Application. I want to tell you this morning that this passage of Scripture personally makes me really uncomfortable. It makes me really uncomfortable. In fact, I have been wrestling with this passage over the past year or so in terms of what the Holy Spirit is saying to me through this scripture and how I need to personally carry out the mission of Jesus, it makes me feel really uncomfortable. And I will admit to you today that I have more questions than I have answers. But more than ever, I believe we need to be having conversations and be comfortable working through the questions and dealing with difficult, uncomfortable passages of Scripture. There are two insights from our text today that I'd like to focus on. And my goal is to point out a couple of principles that I see in this text. And my goal this morning is to leave it 
with each of us individually to prayerfully consider how the Holy Spirit is leading us in regards to each of these. The first, the arms of God. As is clearly outlined in our scripture today, the early church struggled with issues of diversity and inclusion. The early church resisted accepting Gentiles into Christian fellowship unless they were willing to become just like them in their beliefs and practices. It's important to note as we read this account that it is God. It's not Peter. It's not the church members that are opening this gate. It is God that is opening this gate. It is God who initiated the removal of a barrier that was keeping these, quote, unclean people out. It was God that brought them in. It was God that showed his approval for them by miraculously filling them with his Holy Spirit. Peter was the instrument used to accomplish God's purpose, but it was the Holy Spirit that was the craftsman that was creating this new reality. It was the Holy Spirit that brought the visions. It was the Holy Spirit that sent the messengers. It was the Holy Spirit that told Peter it was okay to go with them. It was the Holy Spirit that showed God's approval by baptizing them just as he did the others on the day of Pentecost. It's important for us to note that the sheet in Peter's vision came from heaven. It originated in heaven. The sheet was God's sheet. Yet it contained what Peter believed to be unacceptable and inappropriate. Peter knew that this was about more than food. He struggled because even though he had experienced the grace of Jesus in his own life multiple times, daily preached the grace of Jesus to all who would listen, he limited the reach of the grace of Jesus in his life in terms of others. Grace for Peter had significant conditions attached. Peter did not and could not comprehend the full reach of the arms of God to demonstrate his grace to everyone and include everyone. Now, I suspect today that many of you are like me. We've received God's incredible grace in our lives. We long to share and show his grace so that others around us might come to him just as we have. But like Peter, we too struggle to comprehend the full reach of God's grace. Truth be told, God's arms open much wider than ours. They just do. God's arms open wider than most of us are comfortable with on a daily basis. And so my challenge for all of us this morning is simply this. Don't impede the reach of God's arms of grace by confining his reach to our comfort level or our perceived ideas. Because personally, I never want to be responsible for limiting the reach of God's arms. I want to be able to say like Peter did, God wants this. I don't want to stand in God's way. Number two. I don't only have two. The word of God. Luke goes to great lengths in our scripture. He goes to great lengths to show us the contrast between Cornelius and his household and the believers in the early church. (coughs) Excuse me. He uses words like circumcised versus uncircumcised, clean versus unclean, accepted versus rejected. The most powerful comparison, I believe, in this passage is between the Jews that the early church was, were desperately trying to convert and this Gentile that we see in our story. Many of the Jews at this time, they rejected what God was doing. They rejected Jesus as their Messiah. 
insisting instead to focus on their practices, their laws, their rituals, choosing legalism over this incredible gift of the Messiah of Israel in Jesus Christ. In contrast to them who are rejecting Jesus, we have this Gentile foreigner. He doesn't know the law. He doesn't know the rituals. He doesn't know the practices. He doesn't even know God. He's not been saved by Jesus yet. Yet his desire and his longing for God has resulted in his prayers and his actions rising as an offering that's pleasing to God. I love what Peter said. He says, nothing unclean has gone in my mouth. He knew the law. He kept the rituals. He followed the practices. But you know what, ironically, Peter couldn't say? That nothing unclean has ever come out of my mouth. Chew on that for a while. See what I did there? He says, nothing unclean has gone in. I got the legalism down. He's not saying nothing unclean has come out because that he hasn't mastered yet. He's made promises he didn't keep. He lied multiple times when it was to his advantage to do so. He was disloyal to Jesus. But he followed the practices and believed the right things all while limiting what God wanted to do and failing to understand God's bigger picture plan. Folks, the truth is God is more concerned with the heart of a person than legalistic rituals. In the Old Testament, when dealing with Israel, he said, my name is on your lips, but it's far from your hearts. You know my name. You know my name. You follow the rituals. You don't know me. Now that said, I applaud Peter. I applaud the early church believers. Because even though they knew the word of God, and even though they applied it to their lives as best they could, and even though they thought they had it all figured out, when they were confronted by the Holy Spirit, they were willing to accept that the, what the Spirit was doing, even though it opposed everything they had been taught to believe. In fact, they didn't resent God's arms of grace opening wider. Once they understood it, they celebrated it. Once they signed on, they really signed on. I believe that this passage reminds us to be careful. To be careful. It's easy to fall into the trap of focusing our relationship with Jesus on what we do, on our opinions, on our activities, on our practices. And while doing all of that, we can miss the heart of God and limit the expression of grace that he desires us to demonstrate in our lives. It is important that the word of God guide our lives. I think you know that of me. I think you know how much I love the word of God, how much it frustrates me when people preach it improperly. I love the word of God. It is so important that the word of God guide our lives. With that being said this morning, I want you to know that how we interpret the word of God may vary and in fact may not be correct in some areas. Now I'm going to give you some examples. There are many, thousands upon thousands of evangelicals in the world that believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation that love Jesus with all their heart, that preach the gospel, that want to build the kingdom, that are doing amazing things. And when they read the New Testament, they come to the conclusion that the Old Testament is teaching that when the apostles died and the New Testament, as we know now, was assembled, the Holy Spirit ceased to operate as he did in the book of Acts. There's a fancy word for it called cessationism. And so they believe that 
tongues, prophecy, divine healing, none of those things are relevant for today. Our brothers and sisters in Christ who are, you know, within a short distance from us believe that to their core. Now here we are, And the whole reason Pentecostals are here is because at the turn of the 20th century, people started saying, wait a minute, we believe that what we see in the book of Acts is relevant for today. And so it was the birth of the whole modern day Pentecostal movement as we know it. So in this place this morning, many of us believe that miracles are still possible, that healing is possible that the Spirit of God can speak to us this morning, that, that, that God by His Spirit, you know, empowers by His Spirit. We believe those things. We're reading the same Bible. We love the same Jesus. We're serving the same Jesus. We're just interpreting a text differently. Example number two, women in ministry. Thousands upon thousands of evangelicals believe that while women are important, They should not fulfill key leadership roles in the local church. That men should never sit under the teaching of women. I've been sitting under that for over 30 years. But that men shouldn't sit under the teaching. I'm not making light of it. These are good people. They're scholars. They mean well. And they have read the scriptures and they take Paul's writing and they come to the conclusion that people like Beth Moore should go home. They just do. For no other reason than you're a woman and scripture clearly states that you're out of place. I'm not criticizing them for it, even though I don't agree. But for me and many of you, we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the leadership of women. This fellowship was founded on the leadership of women. Women went places that men would not go to and did ministry that men wouldn't commit to, but then when we organized, all the women got pushed out and the men took over. But we don't have an issue with women being ordained. We have women senior pastors. We have women pastors. We believe that God equally calls men and women. My wife didn't go to Bible college to find a husband. That was the bonus in it all. It's a good place for amen. What I want you to see, folks, is this. Two groups of people who love Jesus, giving their lives to the kingdom, are reading scripture and understanding it differently. I'm just going to give you one more example. I could go all day. And this is the part where you say, Pastor, we're here. We want to hear whatever it is you have to say. Thousands of evangelicals (coughs) theologically believe that God has predestined who will be saved and who will not. And that once these people are saved, they are secured and once saved, always saved. Now, it's a lot more complicated than that, but the fancy word's Calvinism. Thousands upon thousands of people who love Jesus and love the kingdom and are building it every day believe that. On the other side of that is us. Armenians, who believe, no, yeah, God has predestined. Everybody can be saved. And guess what? We believe we've seen lots of people walk away from faith and walk away from salvation. And so it's not a matter of who's right and who's wrong. It's not about that. If that's what you're getting out of this, then you're missing my point. My point is, is that two people can read the same scripture, do their best to understand it as God intended, and end up with a different answer. That's my point. There are many people who love Jesus and live their lives based on scripture, yet interpret scripture different than other people who love Jesus and live their lives based on scripture. The danger with scripture is we sometimes make it say what we want it to say. I already believe this, so I'm going to go fishing for scriptures to back up my point of view. That's the complete opposite of how you should read the Bible. There are some people that read the Bible and say, well, I think this is what it's saying. Because, folks, let's be real. It was written in a language, in a culture 2,000 years ago for the New Testament. You know, in, in, in 
preaching, we call that their town and now our town, and there's a bridge that links the two. And you got to bring across the bridge a 2,000-year-old culture and a 2,000-year-old language, and there's not even words in the English language that align with them and somehow try to figure out what God's saying. It's not always as easy as it seems. So we got to be careful because sometimes we interpret what we think it's saying or more importantly, what we're comfortable with it saying. I would suggest that the better way to approach is to let the truth of Scripture speak to us, even if it makes us feel uncomfortable. This is the last story I'm going to tell you. A few years ago, I was a part of a denomination. I mean, this is how you know you've been around for a long time, you know? I've been in the ministry when women weren't allowed to be on church boards, even in Pentecostal churches, right? Some of you remember that too. I've been around when if people came to Jesus and they'd been divorced in their previous life as a pastor, I wasn't allowed to marry them. It was the unpardonable sin. That's the reality. And so we had a doctrine, we had a theology of divorce and remarriage. And so when I had preached the gospel and I said to people, it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. God loves you and he can turn your life around and give you a new start. And I remember the morning this, this older couple came up and they gave their hearts to Jesus and they told me their story and said, you know, we were high school sweethearts. We hadn't seen each other in years. We just reconnected like three months ago. You know, her husband died and, you know, his wife left years ago and they got divorced and she said, you know, that message was powerful today. We, we want to we wanna serve Jesus. And so will you marry us? Because we're living together. And, 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 and I couldn't. So I had to send them to my Salvation Army minister friend down the street, you know, to do the deed and then send them back up over to me. I mean, does this sound as ridiculous as it was in the moment? Okay, but that's where we were. And so I remember in this conference where finally we were going to do a, a study of Scripture and ask the question, what is Scripture saying about this topic? Because we all know that d- divorce is harmful and hurtful and it's not the best, it's not what God intends. We know that. We know that God hates divorce because it hurts people. And God loves people. And so we gotta, what, what was Jesus saying in here? And what was he talking about? So instead of us coming to our conclusions, we want to see what scripture says to us. And I was sitting in that general conference. It was just before I I actually relocated. And and I'm sitting there and I'm hearing, and these were really good people who did this study that I have great level of respect for. And they came back with the conclusion that we had gotten it wrong and that there was opportunity and that we were too harsh in our position and, and our position was not biblical. And this was announced to the conference. Every pastor and leader from the churches were sitting there being told, here's a report. And everybody was like, wow, this is, this is different. But you know what? We, we believe that that's what the word of God is saying. But the next part was shocking. When one of our leaders said, while we believe that what we have been doing is opposed to scripture. Ready? To change it now will create too many problems for our people and our churches, so we're just going to leave it like it was. (laughs) I stood up to speak at the microphone, and I said, I can't believe what I'm hearing. I've been a part of a tradition my whole life that brags on the fact that we are scripture-based, and today we hear a report that, guess what? We got it wrong, and guess what? We're going to find out there's a lot more we got wrong, too. Tuck that one away. We got it wrong. And now it's time for us to admit we got it wrong and fix this. And what I'm hearing is it's just too messy and uncomfortable. So let's just leave it like it is. I said, today I'm ashamed to be a part of this. I'm ashamed to be a part of it. Now, shortly after, and I don't think at all related to my comments, they were able to make the steps and make the changes. And so today, if you're here and you're divorced and you want to get married, as long as you can fill out the affidavit and tick one of the five boxes, we're good to go. My point is, we might just find ourselves like Peter in the early church on occasion being challenged by the Holy Spirit 
because we're limiting what God has to say. Limiting what God has to say. And we have to believe today that the same Holy Spirit that inspired the scripture is able to help us understand and apply the scripture in a way that is both diverse and inclusive. I'm going to invite our worship team back. A spirit-formed community is both diverse and inclusive as it carries out the mission of Jesus. So let's make sure that we never limit the full embrace of the arms of God's grace. And let's make sure that we are understanding and living scripture in a manner that the Holy Spirit can speak to us and lead us and others into truth. Folks, I'll tell you honestly this morning, there are a number of areas. They're not the critical ones. They don't question the deity of Jesus, the authority of the cross. But some of the peripheral things in 30-some years of ministry, I've come to conclude I didn't have it quite right. I didn't have it quite right. And I'm okay to admit that. And I'm okay to change that. Now, it might result in me losing my job and my credentials. But I, I admit that. Because if there's ever a moment that we decide and understand that maybe what we thought to be true is really not true, then why would we keep doing what we know and believe in our heart is not true? And we respect each other because some of us look at Scripture and see it like this, and we mean well, and someone else sees it like this, and they mean well, and it's not the core of our gospel. And we respect the fact that different people can think differently about certain scriptures than we do, and they still love and serve Jesus just like we do. Would you mind standing with me this morning? My prayer, as long as I'm the pastor of this church, that you will listen to what I had to say, and I never want to be someone who controls your mind. I speak the truth, and you, what I believe to be the truth, and you have to decide whether you believe that's the truth and apply it accordingly. Otherwise, I'd have to believe that you don't have the ability to think for yourself, and I should be telling you what books you should read and who you should talk to and where you should go. And I don't believe that. I respect the fact that you can think for yourself, and I always want you to. Our prayer team's going to come, and if you're here this morning, and because we do still believe the Spirit of God is moving as we saw in the book of Acts. We believe today that divine healing is still possible today. We believe in miracles. We believe that God speaks still. We believe that God moves by his Spirit still. And perhaps, just perhaps, that's what many of us need in this place this morning. So I'm going to invite the prayer team to come. Tyler and our worship team are going to lead us. And we're just going to allow God to do in our lives today what he chooses to do. Lord, this morning we declare that you are good. You are good and your mercy does endure forever. And Lord, this morning we just pray, we know deep in our hearts that you're never going to let us down. You promised you'd never leave us or forsake us. You promised to be with us always, even to the end of the earth. So we believe that and so we thank you that we can be reminded of that this morning because sometimes we lose sight of those truths. And Father, this morning we also know that while you may never let us down, we know there are times that we do let you down. And Lord, this morning our prayer is, is that you would help us on this journey to do our best to love you and serve you to the best that we know how, that you would help us by your Holy Spirit that we might be who you want us to be. We'll do what you want us to do. Father, today I pray 
I thank you for the width and the openness of the arms of our God who receives the prodigal, the broken, the hurting. And we know as we look at the life of Jesus that there were many who entered into the arms of God, that there were many who felt were not worthy to come. But you demonstrated that coming is not about being worthy. It's about your grace and our response to it. So we thank you. And may we be the voice that proclaims the incredible love of our God, the grace demonstrated through Jesus Christ. Father, this morning we are thankful for your word. We thank you that it shapes our lives and speaks into the deep, dark places within us, calls forth from within us the things that you want us to do and to be. And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us and lead us as we read it and understand it with the goal being at the end of the day that we just live it out as you intended. Lord, sometimes your word has been abused to the point that it limits your work. And we don't want to be a part of that. We want your word to have the full capacity of its intention. And so, Lord, I pray, help us with our questions. Help us to be comfortable with questions. Help us to be able to be used of you even though we have questions. And God, as we leave this place, would this week be a week where the vision of the kingdom of God is lived out in our everyday as we seek to serve you and know you and love you? Thank you for every person here this morning. I thank you that you have a plan and a purpose for each and every one of us, that you love us, that you're patient with us. Lord, I pray that you lead and guide us as we leave this place this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here this morning.